our deepest fears that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, today's episode is a little bit different to normal programming. Today's episode is just me just me when we were thinking about how we wanted to finish this year the inside influence team and i when we were trying to figure out what's the best way to wrap up 2022 we came to the conclusion that just putting all the lessons into one bowl and offering them up is probably the best and the most generous and honest thing that we can do you know we hit 150 episodes this year 150 how is that even possible And there have been so many brilliant minds and brilliant insights. Um, It's hard to know what to do with all of that information. It's hard to know how to process it sometimes. And so the intention of today is really just to unpack a few of the lessons from 2022. Some of the things that I have learned, both the easy way and, of course, the unnecessarily hard way, including why I took an eight-week sabbatical this year, what I did, what I learned, and how it's changed how I show up both within this podcast and in all other areas of my life and existence. Also going to be answering a couple of questions today. One I get asked all the time, imposter syndrome, please raise your hand. We're going to be talking about you. And one that was emailed through just recently about how I prepare and try to craft a great interview. You know, we get sent a lot of questions. I get sent a lot of questions and I love them. I love every single one of them. They become the basis for how we plan the podcast, the guests that we choose, the content that we put out there. You know, some of your questions have become the basis of presentations I give out there in the world. And so I appreciate every single last one that you sent through. Please, in 2023, keep those questions coming. So let's kick off this year. It was a big one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any other way of saying that. It was, it was a big one. We were obviously coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and here in Australia, we, we had the, the tragic devastation of the bushfires. And we also had the devastation of the floods that came through. And so I think we were kind of crawling our way out of all of those things and and then we hit this point I would say maybe early February where we were like okay okay let's go this year let's take a run at it let's you know turn this into the best possible year that it can be you know let's take a new slate here and almost as soon as that thought had occurred for for me and for the team COVID hit it felt like everybody had COVID we had somehow managed to avoid it in the over the last couple of years and 
then Josh got it, my husband, um, the kids, then me. And it felt like two months of the year just disappeared in rat tests and being locked down and um, taking care of each other and making space for each other and trying to catch up, just trying to juggle and keep head above water. And on top of that, in our world, we also had a very personal decision to make. For those of you who know a little bit about our journey, my journey and my husband's journey with creating our family involved IVF, involved in a, a journey with IVF that spanned over, I don't know, the entire journey was 10 years, but the IVF part itself was probably, you know, three, three years, I would say. And during that journey, we had fortunately, very fortunately, ended up with embryos that we hadn't used. And so we, we had a small number of embryos in the freezer at our IVF clinic. Now, they had been there since we went, underwent IVF with my son. And so they had been there for nearly four years. And in that time, a lot of conversations had been had in our household, you know, conversations about what to do, how to treat it, the different options that were available, how we felt. And every year, my husband would say to me, you know, are you are you ready? Because we had decided that we weren't going to have any more children. And every year I would look at him and say, nope, nope, not ready yet. I'm not ready. And I did my own journey with that. I took care of myself. And eventually I had reached the point where I was ready, where we were ready to say goodbye. And so that was happening in the background there. And, you know, as prepared as you are, there is a reality to certain moments in life that never truly hits you until you're there and your knees get taken out a little bit from underneath you or a lot. And the idea of how you thought you would feel just doesn't marry up with how you do feel. And that was very much one of those experiences for me. And so I kind of limped a little after that. I think my family limped a little after that and tried to reset, but nothing, nothing was really working. Nothing was really working. And I, as I thought about that, you know, I went away for a little while, for a few days, didn't work. And I was sitting and I was thinking, what is wrong? I'm usually pretty good. I'm usually pretty good at resetting. I'm usually pretty good at turning over a new page and picking up the pen and, and getting on with writing. And all I could think of, the metaphor that kept coming into my head, the, the visual that kept arriving was this visual of inhaling. Like it had been so much inhaling over the past few years, so much with, you know, IVF and, and young children and um, the pandemic and the fires and the floods and, and everything that had gone on, you know, my business, as many people's business, was, was pretty crushed by what happened during the pandemic. The events industry disappeared and that's where we derive a large portion of our income. And my husband, his business also is in an industry that was severely impacted. So there was a lot going on and it just felt like, you know, it was constant inhales, just, <gasps> you know, 
you've also got the worry of family that you can't reach and, and a thousand other small inhales that go along with, with juggling small children, whether you were locked in a house alone or whether you were crowded out. I just had this visual of inhaling and that I couldn't, I just couldn't inhale anymore. I literally, I felt like I hadn't exhaled in three years. And like I had taken this huge breath and if I didn't exhale soon, I was going to explode. And I hadn't yet, you know, I hopefully wasn't going to let it get that far, but I could feel it. I could feel it vibrating under my skin. I could feel it vibrating in the periphery of my vision. I could feel something coming and I knew that if I let it get any closer, it wasn't going to be good news for anybody. And, you know, for those of you who are parents, for those of you who run a business, for those of you who are, you know, founders, you will know that, you know, let's metaphorically call it the mothership, but the parentship, when the parentship goes down, you know, everything goes down. We, we are the fuel. We are the fuel of all. And we have a responsibility when we, we notice these things, however hard it is to stop back and take care of them. We have to try and do it. And goodness knows I have not done it before and paid the price. And those around me have paid the price. And I always liken it to, you know, when you've got your foot, that feeling you've got your foot on the brake and the accelerator at the same time, where a part of you is like, let's go. Like we haven't had the opportunity to go for the longest time, like literally go as in leave our house. But, you know, metaphorically go push with the business get out there create new things you know it's we've been feeling kind of so static for so long let's go and then there's another part a quieter part that has its foot very firmly on the brakes going no no we're not going let's not go there's stuff that needs to be tended to here and guess what? We can't go to the next level unless we complete the last. And so, no, this is my vote and it's no. And having your foot on the, if you think about an engine, you have your foot on the brake and your foot on the accelerator at the same time, what happens? Burns out, right? Burns out, the engine burns out, blows a fuse. And that's what I, what I felt I was on the edge of at that time, around about kind of April April time. And so it all kind of shifted or began to shift one morning when I was I was going for a walk every morning in my local area and we're lucky we live in you know beautiful Sydney, Sydney, Australia. And within a five minute walk of my house in pretty much every direction there is there is the harbour. There is a rock to sit on, a quiet spot somewhere, um, to watch seals, boats, birds, blue skies. And that's where I was. That's where I found myself at about 6.30 a.m. one morning, sat on a rock, just feeling the edges of this sensation closing on me. And a beautiful friend of mine called Lorraine Murphy, she's an incredible woman, she sent me a text message and she said, are you walking? And I said, actually, no, I am sitting. If you would like to sit, come join me. And she came along and she sat next to me on this rock and she said, you know, what's going on? You've been, you've been really quiet these last few months. And I explained 
and she looked at me and I'll always remember it she looked at me and she said if I gave you a magic wand right now what would you do what would you want what do you need and I just looked at her and I said I need to press stop I need to press stop for a while but I can't I can't press stop I have so many commitments I have projects that have been waiting for the last 24 months to start I have a team I have a, a content calendar that I have committed to I have a podcast that you know that I love and guests locked in that I'm excited about um, and yet and yet if you ask me honestly that's what I need I need to just press stop and she just kind of looked at me with that look that people sometimes use when they don't need to say anything else. You just answered your own question. And so we got up and we walked away and I kind of, that conversation stuck with me for a while, but I, I still didn't do anything about it. I just kept moving, kept trucking. And then an email came through probably a few days later from Brene Brown. Not personally to me. She doesn't email me personally, but it was the newsletter that she sends out. And I think the title was My Sabbatical or something like that. And I read, I read her newsletter and she was talking about the fact that she was pressing pause for eight weeks. I think it was 12 actually. She was pressing pause for 12 weeks and that she wouldn't be heard from again for 12 weeks. She was, she had canceled all the commitments that she could cancel. She was pressing pause on the podcast. She would not be on social media. The newsletter would not go out. The team were given a holiday and that she was doing it because it felt like something vital that was necessary for her life, for her happiness and thriving in her own existence. And there was something that she said in particular. She said, when you start to notice that the gap between stimulus and response has disappeared, that's when you, know you need to do something. And that kind of hit it on the head for me, the gap between stimulus and response. You know, when I am in a good space, I think when all of us are in a good space, there's a gap there. Something can happen and there's at least a few seconds, if not a couple of seconds, where we get to choose our response, where we get to choose how we show up in that moment. And the more we struggle, the more exhausted we become, the more overwhelmed we become, the less our own self-care takes top priority the shorter that gap becomes until it just disappears. And I knew in myself that I wasn't a great partner at that time. I knew I wasn't a great mother at that time. My temper was short. I wasn't showing up the way that I wanted to show up. And that's me, right? That's me. I'm, I study this stuff. You know, I live and breathe this stuff. I spend my life surrounded by the most incredible, inspiring thought leaders in my, in their space. I spend all of my time thinking about how we can show up more intentionally in the way that we influence ourselves, our families, our communities, our industries, our businesses. And I was not doing that. I was not in that space. And so I, I decided that day that I would take a, a sabbatical. Thank you, Brene. And I was going to take eight weeks. I was going to take eight weeks off. 
and I talked to my husband and I talked to my team and it was hard. Like, man, it was hard as somebody who prides themselves on consistency, as someone who prides themselves on showing up when I say that I will show up, someone who prides myself on having the courage to push through when it's hard, to say to the people around you that, you know, it's not that this is too hard. It's that I'm, I don't have enough in the tank to do the hard right now. I need to fill my tank before I can jump back into the hard. I need to exhale before I can do any more inhaling. And actually when you have those conversations, they're not as hard as you think they're going to be because in the moment, you know, everybody can feel where you're at everybody can feel the truth of the situation and you know they feel compassionate and you know they're looking for ways to make this happen and that's the beauty right when you can identify very clearly what you need this is what I need this is what I need to keep showing up for you and everybody else for you and everybody that I love everybody that I want to serve and so this compassion kicks in and it's amazing It's amazing. It's a soft landing, usually, hopefully. But then, and this is important to know as well, this is important to talk about as well, also what happens after that is the blowback. The blowback. You know, at 24 hours to 48 hours later, when everybody's had a chance to digest, um, then the, the pushback starts. And it's not pushback from any other place than, you know, than confusion or fear or curiosity but it you know the reality kicks in which is well exactly you know I know you said you wanted you can have a sabbatical but can you explain to me how you think that that's going to work with everything that we've got on can you explain to me how we're going to do this project if you're not here can you explain to me you know from from my husband can you explain to me financially exactly how you see this panning out um and then, the, you know, you start exploring and those are the moments I think that are the hardest because that's when you're really, your conviction is really called in. How sure are you about this? Because that's when you start making compromises. Oh, okay, well, maybe I will do bits of it. Oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll take phone calls. Oh, maybe, okay, I'll still be on social. And maybe, okay, I'll do a few interviews. And it's those compromises that you make that actually removes all the power out of your decision, all the power out of your choice and all the potential power that it has to give you. And so I really had to work hard in those conversations to hold and to not try and fix and to not try and solve, to problem solve, absolutely, but not solve by giving up on the thing that I needed. And so you work through, you work through those conversations I remember Josh coming up to me a few days later and he said, you know, just checking in this eight weeks that you're taking, will you be spending some of it thinking about, um, you know, what you're going to do next? Like, will you be spending some of it making a plan so that, you know, you're going to hit the ground running with a plan? And I remember looking at him and just thinking, no, no, I will not. No, I won't. And that sounds utterly selfish, maybe. And utterly irresponsible, maybe again, almost certainly. But no, this is time that I'm carving out 
this is not me putting myself somewhere else to obsess over answers to questions that I don't have yet. This is not just a change of frame for the existing way of being. This is a change of state that I'm looking for. This is a change of state that I need. And then when I come back, you know, we'll see. We'll revisit. I'll have way more energy, way more clarity in and of myself. My tank will be fuller. Then I will make choices that are not based on fear, that are not with their foot, with one foot on the accelerator and one foot firmly on the brake. So what did I do? What did I do? The eight weeks came. Um, it started. We had solved, you know, we had to cancel a, a very large project that we were working on. Um, a program that I was building uh, that was very near to completion and we pretty much had to had to can it. That was probably the hardest decision that I had to make and where I felt the most impact on, on the team around me because they had put so much into it. And, you know, more on where that ended up later. So it began. The eight weeks started. And, you know, I had so many plans. I was going to, let me, let me list some for you. I was going to go for long walks. I was, I Googled waterfalls near my area. There aren't any, by the way, they're all a a bit of a drive away, but that should give you an idea of what I was planning on doing. I was, I was going to go to the library and actually read, not sit there and type, but read concept. Um, I was going to sit in cafes. I was going to see friends that I hadn't seen in a really long while. Um, I was going to sit in the sun. And then it started and both my children got sick. Both kids. It was like three out of the four weeks, both my children were at home. And actually, that was perfect. That was perfect. And even at the time, I remember just kind of giggling to myself and saying, you know what? Look at, look at the way the universe works. You asked to be present. You know, you asked for space to be present. You, one of the things I wanted was to spend more time with my kids, pick them up from school, um, you know, not work on weekends. And here I am. I'm very present. There is nothing that will get you more present than, you, than sick children. Um, I'm spending time with my kids. And the other thing that I had asked for was a break from just thinking and overthinking, trying to fix, trying to problem solve, trying to figure out how we're going to rebuild this business trying to figure out what's coming next, trying to figure out, um, you know, what 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 projects need to come into being that, that suit this period of time rather than the last period of time. And once again, sick children will do that for you. Sick children will. <laughs> there is no time for thinking and obsessing and burning yourself out in your brain when you have sick children around. And so we bunkered down and we watched movies and we ate soup and we sat under blankets and they did the miraculous thing that children do, which is enthrall you, annoy you, um, crowd you out and smother you in incredibleness all at the same time. And then we went to England. And so that was the first four weeks of the eight weeks and the second four weeks I went back home And that going back home was really important to me. I got to spend time with my family again. I walked, I watched my kids play in my back garden. Um, I had a few family members that were unwell. 
that unfortunately we needed to say goodbye. And even that had beauty to it because I got to realize that I existed elsewhere, you know, outside of this world that I have created for myself, this nation that I live in, this identity that I have built, you know, there's nothing like showing you that you exist outside of your identity, <laughs> like going home and having everybody, you know, know you as your previous identity, having everybody know you as, as something else, something altogether less complicated. And so stepping back into that was an incredible reset. And and also spending time with my with my parents, my family, who I had not seen in in nearly three years by that point. So that's what I did. What did I not do? What did I not do? Well, I did not check email or social. I did not try to solve anything. And that was really hard and really big. You know, usually if I have some space, I have a list of problems that I need to solve, of questions I'm trying to answer, of ideas I want to explore. And this time I just didn't. This time, any time that kicked in, I hit the mental delete button and I tried to give myself permission to be without producing anything. Permission just to exist without having to contribute in any way or, or be productive, just permission to be. In fact, I made, I, I made a deal with the universe while I was away. And I said, you know what, if I've been doing what I do for 20 years now, and I love it, but something's not flowing right for me right now. And if I, if this is an unhealthy relationship, as in if I love it, and it doesn't love me anymore, then that's okay. I just need to know. I just need to know because there are other paths for me to explore. There are other things that I could do, you know, ways of creating and, and weaving my life that I could be passionate about. But I don't want to chase after something that doesn't want me. And so if this path, if this work has fallen out of love with me. If that's why I'm not feeling the flow anymore, I'm not feeling the the genius or the mastery move through me right now, if I'm just feeling like pressing stop, then then that's okay. But I just need to know. And that was my deal. That was my deal with the universe. And you know, the truth is I came back not feeling raring to go but willing to let go, willing to walk further down the path, willing to keep going on the road for the love of the road as opposed to any particular expectation or bar or KPI that I had placed on myself. There's a, there's a mentor that I have, um, a beautiful woman, and I remember once asking her about parenting and she's, she's just an amazing, both her and her husband, amazing parents. And we were out in her back garden one day and we were picking vegetables for dinner. And I said to her, what's, how do you parent? Like, what's, what's your philosophy for parenting? Because I am making this up as I go along. And, you know, some days I do well and some days very much not. And, you know, I'd love to learn from you. 
And she said this one line that will probably always stay with me. She said, "The number one, my number one rule for parenting is hold on lightly, let go tightly. Hold on lightly, let go tightly. And that, I think, was the shift that the sabbatical brought for me. I had been, you know, holding on so tightly, holding on so tightly to stop from things from falling apart, from holding on so tightly to, you know, my family, holding on so tightly to ideas, um, to where I thought I should have been versus where I was. And the sabbatical just enabled me to just unprize my fingers and start to hold on lightly and let go tightly. And that has probably made the biggest difference this year. So what did I decide to do differently? What's changed since then? I mean, all of this happened June, July of 2022. What changed? Well, the biggest thing that changed is making regular times to reset. You know, as somebody and any entrepreneurs out there and founders out there, you'll know who spends a lot of my time just chucking spaghetti at the wall, seeing what sticks. You know, every so often you got to wipe that wall down before you start throwing more spaghetti. And that has become a regular part of my, of my flow, a regular part of my flow, regular resets, you know, at least every 90 days, a day or two, if I can, just to reset myself, reset my energy, reset my intention. Also, a part of that is realizing that the most important moments of my life, the moments of my life where I look back and I think, ah, that's where it shifted. That's when that idea dropped in. That's when I, you know, something new happened that took me in a whole new direction. They have all happened without exception in the void, in the fertile void, in the space that I had consciously or, you know, <laughs> or deliberately, but accidentally, as in I didn't want to, but I had to, um, made. You know, the best, most important, most pivotal moments of our life happen in the void, in the space between one chapter and the next chapter, in the getting comfortable with the blank page, not trying to write all over it, not trying to rewrite the last chapter because we're so terrified that the page in front of us is blank sitting in the void. And so why wouldn't we, why wouldn't I create more of that in my life? More voids, more pauses, more resets. The second thing that changed was this idea of working in seasons. You know, I had never really worked in seasons. I'm either on or I'm off. You know, either I'm running at 100 miles an hour or, you know, I'm, I'm on the ground begging for a nap. And I've shifted how I've done it now and going into next year, you know, the podcast will be in seasons. So it'll be two seasons. There'll be the first season of the year and the second season of the year. And what that enables me and the team to do is have pauses. So the, there's a pause over Christmas where we take time with our family. It's summer here. We refresh, we come up with new ideas. And then there will also from next year be a pause in July where again, we will take some time, refresh, fill up our creative tanks, come up with new great ideas, and then hit the ground running for the next season. So this concept of running areas of my life in seasons is a really new one for me. Um, 
running them in seasons in cycles allowing that there to be cycles you know there's the marathon there's the sprint and then there's the recovery and that's you know that might not be new for for many of you but that's a really new one for me the idea of seasons and cycles and so that is something that I want to create more of in my life next year seasons cycles and resets and pauses you know when I was preparing for this episode I was looking back on some of the you know incredible humans that I have interviewed this year that have been on the podcast this year and you know this idea of the great reset was such a strong through line I don't think I realized at the time but I was you know going back through all of my interview notes and it's there pretty much through every single conversation you know we had Emily McDowell talking about having sold her business her very successful business and taking some time to step back pressing pause on social media despite having a huge following that she had nurtured all this time and the fear that if she disappeared then it too would disappear and Jeff Immelt the previous CEO of GE the the leader who led GE through and in the aftermath of 9-11 and who left GE at a very controversial time you know his tenure is you know he says himself at best called controversial there was a lot of detractors of the decisions that he made, a lot of critics of the decisions that he made during that time. And the pause that he took afterwards to reset and choose to rewrite his own story as a leader. You know, I will not let that be the defining narrative for me. I will pick up the pen and write my own narrative, literally in the book that he wrote and also in the incredible work that he's gone on to do. We talked to Raj Sisodia, the author of Conscious Capitalism. He was talking about his recent break and what the break that led him to write the book that will be due out next year. We'll have him back on to talk about it, which was Awaken, which was a point in his life that became a bend in the road, a moment where everything changed. Elizabeth Lesser, the author of Broken Open, talking about the Phoenix process and how at various points in our lives we will all be asked or called to step into the fire or forced <laughs> to step into the fire and it's how we respond in those moments when we step into the fire that gives us the ability the capacity to be transformed to let it burn long enough to face the burning for long enough that we are able to be transformed and emerge as a phoenix from those moments Talk to Victoria Labam about risking forward, about pressing pause on what you are doing right now and looking at the next big leap that you want to take and risking it. And that included trusting the idea that leads to the idea. Oh my goodness, the amount of times I have said that out loud and, and to myself this year. Trust the idea that leads to the idea. And then also the incredible Leslie M who talked about swagger and how the biggest part of developing swagger, showing up with swagger, you know, arriving and owning the room fiercely and with gravity and this sense of being bulletproof, it only comes when you know you know how to take a punch, when you are willing to take a punch. And in those moments, stop, recover, make sense of what happened, and then get back in the ring. 
And so all of these conversations have just become this beautiful through line of my year this year, the year of this podcast, the journey that, you know, I have walked, the team have walked and, you know, vicariously you have been walking with us. And I'm hoping for you that your resets have come more gently. I'm hoping for you that you did a better job at taking care of yourself and that your resets were gentle and voluntary and and transformative. Now, let's move on to one of the questions that came through this year. One of the questions. And that was a question about how I design interviews. Now, this is an email that arrived, I think it was a few weeks ago, actually. And I put it on one side and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write an article on that or oh, I'll, I'll put some content together on that. And I just haven't. I think it's it's one of those topics that I really needed to sit with and, and think about how I do that. How do I design interviews? You know, it's become so um, inherent over the years. You know, what is the process that I use? And she made a really great point, the, the woman who sent the email. She said, I feel like great influencing comes from being able to align and connect with other great voices and leaders. How do you craft a great interview? And so there are many ways. The answer to the question is there are many ways. However, this is my way. This is my way that I have developed. Now, here's the truth of this question. I did not start out as a, even a good, I was about to say great. No, good. I did not start out as a good interviewer. Um, I started out clumsily, messily, um, just hoping to make an imperfect contribution to a conversation that I was very passionate about. And interviewing is something I had to really learn. It's something that I had to develop deliberately as a skill. So, you know, if there's any kind of myth out there that this is something that comes really easily or something that some people are just born to do, not true, or at least not in my experience. So how, how have I learned to do it? Well, firstly, research. Research. You're not going to be able to craft a great interview unless you have empathy and curiosity about someone else's life. So I think every great interview starts there. It starts with diving into somebody else's world. And the way that I do that is watching videos mainly. I like to watch videos. I, you know, I'd love to say that I have time to read every single book that comes my way, um, but usually I don't. There are some exceptions, but usually I don't. Usually I will read articles if I read at all where they've mentioned some key topics or some key pieces of content from the book that they have just written. What I love most of all is watching a presentation where they talk about the book and the, the core themes of the book and they tell stories about that. So I'm lucky a lot of the people that I interview, they have incredible videos out there. But I will put at least an hour, if not two, aside for every single interview to do my research and to craft questions. So first thing I do is my research and that is just a brain dump. It's a brain dump on a page. Sometimes it ends up being seven or eight pages long. And then what I do is I go through that research and I pull out themes, usually three to four key themes. And those key themes become like, you know, the acts in a play, they become like that. They become the structure, the body, of the interview. So the three themes that I want to talk to somebody about might be, you know, let's use Leslie again. It might be, you know, what is swagger? How do we develop swagger? Um, what stops us having more swagger? They might be the three core themes. 
Now, in amongst the three core themes, I also have my intro question and my close question, and they are always the same. I flip up the intro question sometimes, but usually they are always the same. And that is very deliberate. That is because that intro question is designed to create ease. You've got to remember when I'm jumping on interviews with people, often we have never met, we've never spoken before, and we might have 30 seconds to three minutes before we jump on air. And so that first question is really to create ease. It's to open up their energy and it's to open up the conversation. So it, it can't begin in this kind of typewriter style fashion, which a lot of people who do a lot of interviews, you know, they have their stock standard responses. They have their stock standard questions that they get asked. And it's literally verbatim sometimes. And it has to be because they have to do it over and over and over again. Um, and so that first question I asked, which is, you know, what's one idea that's been having a lot of influence on your thinking recently? It can be past, present, related to your work or not related to your work. And there's something about that question that just really captures people's imagination. And it gets emailed to them before time. It's the only question I email. It's the only question I provide ahead of time. And you can tell that if they've read the email, that they've really thought about it and that they've spent time kind of sifting through their ideas to find one that's really capturing them. And that comes with an energy and that comes with a free flow of, of conversation. There's no scripting in that. And so that's why I always kick off with that question. And I always end with, if I could give you a stage and a microphone and put in front of you every single person you would ever want to interview, what's the one thing you would want them to know? And the reason for that question, again, very deliberately, is it forces, um, it's a, the end of the funnel. If you imagine the interview is the funnel, we put in all this information, all these ideas, all these stories. This is the bottom of the funnel. What two or three drops, if I can't handle anything else, if my day is long, my head is overwhelmed, my brain is melting, you know, if I can't handle anything else, what's the one or two drops that I can take with me right now in action? So it's a very deliberate way to finish. So we have our beginning, we have our end, and then we have our three kind of core themes. Then what I do is I start to frame the questions that go underneath these kind of core themes. And a lot of that is about, when I really sat and thought about it, a lot of it is about energy. A lot of that is about, okay, so tell me, so you've got the practical questions, the one that kick in, that kicks in your brain. You know, tell me how to do that. You know, exactly how does that work? But if you keep somebody in practical questions long enough, it's going to become a very surface conversation. Their energy is going to get really, really stilted. You're asking them things that they know inside out. It's very technical. So then you need to drop. And that might be, tell me how that's impacted your own life. Tell me how that's changed your own decision making. What's the one moment where you really felt that kick in for you and what was happening? So we drop, we, we shift energy. I was interviewing Cody Keenan, Barack Obama's speechwriter yesterday. And when I was developing questions for him and I was reading his new book, that was, this is a book that I very much made the time to read um, because I was so looking forward to it arriving. It's grace, it's incredible, pick it up, please read it. And when I was going through that book, you know, I know Cody well enough to know that he wants to talk about larger concept ideas. He wants to talk about the direction that America is going in from a community and from a philosophical standpoint. 
you know, if I'm designing questions for him, they need to go all the way up the chain from the practical. What does that look like? What's your process? Up to give me a story of a moment in time. Up to, you know, how do you see that playing out? What are you worried about right now? What's keeping you up at night? How do you see the communities um, within the USA coming together? How do you see that? You know, what's that going to look like? What's that going to take? And so for him, I knew that it would have to expand and contract, expand and contract. And so, yeah, I think when I'm designing questions, that's what I'm looking for. It's the flow. I can read a whole bunch of questions in a row and already feel my energy start to kind of shut the all practical questions. So then I add in some more and I can feel it shift. So it's very much just feeling into feeling into that journey. The other thing that I don't do so much now, I should do more um, and I haven't done for a while, but I did very much at the beginning was studying beautiful questions. You know, there are a few interviewers out there that just ask the most incredible questions. You know, Tim Ferriss is one, Brene Brown is another, you know, This American Life is another on being Krista Tippett. I could just keep going, but those guys alone, there's a wealth of knowledge. And I have a note on my phone and when I'm listening to their podcast, when I'm listening to their interviews, if I hear a beautifully phrased question, I'll write it down. I'll keep it. They're like little gems for me. And so I have a long list of beautifully phrased questions and often I'll go back to it. If I'm struggling for how to phrase a question or I'm struggling for an in on a topic that I want to unpack but I don't know how, I'll look at those questions and usually there's a clue in there somewhere in the phrasing of one of their questions that kind of unlocks that topic for me. And so that is my process. That is the process that I go through when it comes to trying to craft, doing my best to craft great interviews for for y'all to listen to. Now, the next question that I wanted to answer as part of this episode was one that I think I have been asked more than any other question this year and probably any other year. And that is the question of imposter syndrome. So what is imposter syndrome and how do we how do we move past it, through it, fight it, <laughs> beat it, whatever language you want to use? Well, let's start by just reframing what it is for a second. I've had a lot of time to think about this. I've had a lot of ways to consider how to answer this question. And I have had a lot of experience with it in my own life. And I think it starts with reframing what we understand as the term, what we understand as the name. You know, for me, imposter syndrome, what it has come to be is it has come to be an alarm, a very reliable, very loud alarm that tells me when I am at the edge of my comfort zone, when I am at the edge of the next leap, when I am at the edge of going to the next level. It's an alarm bell that goes up off when I am just pressing up against that edge. And it's the reframing of what imposter syndrome is that has enabled me to shift it in my own life pretty effectively now. Because no longer do I feel that imposter syndrome is something coming to get me. You know, a monkey on my back. Uh, you know, this kind of devil that I have to outrun. You know, now I have a very different relationship with it. Now it is a signal. It's very clean. It's a signal. And it's a signal of something good. 
And I have enough experience behind me to know that every single time I have fronted up in those moments, something good, something important, something transformational has happened. And so it's lived experience that that signal is something that I can run towards as opposed to run away from. So that's imposter syndrome as, you know, as the word, the language itself. Now let's look at what we do with imposter syndrome or what I used to do with imposter syndrome very frequently was, you know, we've got our core imposter responses, core ones. You know, we obsess, we obsess and we obsess and we obsess about something. Um, something that's coming up, something that we've said yes to, something that we feel like we might have to say yes to, something that, you know, we we think we're capable of doing, but we're just not sure. You know, we just turn our brain into mush running over and over and over and over. The next one is we hide. We obsess and we hide. And so we say no. We say no to opportunities. We, we say yes, but then hide when we show up by only showing up as half ourselves, only showing half of ourselves, not turning up the volume on who we are and what we are capable of offering on our expertise, on our experiences, on our, our authority, on what we have come to know to be true. So we either obsess or we hide or we obsess and we hide. Um, we defend, we get defensive. You know, this is my favorite one. We get defensive before anybody's attacked. You know, I call this shadow boxing. It's when, you know, somebody starts fighting and there's not even anybody there, but you start preempting all the things you're going to hear about. You start preempting the critics. You start preempting the pushback. You start preempting um, the negative feedback and you start, you know, you can almost feel yourself starting to defend yourself. Your fight or flight goes off. And so we start using vital energy to defend something that hasn't even happened yet defend against something that may well not happen and I call that shadow boxing it's when we start boxing at shadows and it's exhausting and you know we all know people in our own lives that you know that we watch and we think why are you wasting so much energy defending against something that's not even attacking just in case it might and the next one is we quit this is the ultimate we quit we say no we say I'm out so too hard, too much. Um, you know, that's where a lot of our two language comes in. You know, no way. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too big. I'm too small. I'm too experienced. I'm too inexperienced. I'm too loud. I'm too quiet. I'm too introverted. I'm too extroverted. That's when we let our twos overwhelm us and we just bow out. We leave the ring. We step out of the arena. And not only do we do that, but we get in our car and we go home and we vow never to come back. And those are the ones that when I see that happen to the people who I, you know, I'm, I serve, the people who write to me, the people who I hear from, the people who I come across, those are the ones that break my heart. Those are the incredible human beings with the important ideas, with the passion and experience to take it all the way, who are because of imposter syndrome, getting in their cars, and going home when we need them we need them in the arena we need them to use their voice we need their experience you know th those are the moments that really get to me as somebody who works with people to try and get them in the arena to use the arena to create real and incredible change 
So we've got, you know, what it is, what it looks like, how it plays out. Now let's have a talk about what we can do with it. So I'm going to tell you a, a, a quick story here. It was about, it was before lockdown. It was, it was close to when lockdown began, close to when the pandemic began. And I was speaking at an event in Bangkok, Thailand. And it was the night before I had flown in that afternoon and I was ready. I was ready to go. Slides were ready. Presentation was prepped. You know, I was just reading through my notes, going to have an early night and be ready to go the next morning. And a text arrived on my phone. And I picked up my phone. It was a text from an old colleague, somebody who as a talent manager, I used to own a management company for speakers and authors and thought leaders, someone who I had managed and, you know, someone who I loved very dearly and respected. And he said, oh, my God, I've just looked at the program for tomorrow and we're both on the same stage. We're both speaking at the same event. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in the audience. I'm going to be cheering you on. Um, can't wait to see now, there were two ways that moment could have gone. One, I could have got excited. You know, he's usually based in the USA. I could have got excited that I was going to see a long, you know, a longtime friend. Um, and I could have got excited about, you know, the possibility that he would see my presentation and maybe some, have some ideas for me, some feedback for me um, that, you know, I could have used it as an opportunity to get bigger, to get better. To, to get supportive feedback from someone whose opinion I respected. Or I could have gone with option B, which was to obsess, um, hide, um, defend, and try and find ways to quit. And I'm going to let you guess which option I went with. And so I spent the rest of the night just completely pulling myself to pieces. You know, I, I had never really, that was the first time I had spoken in front of one of my peers. That was, you know, I had spoken to rooms of hundreds, I think, you know, thousands. The biggest, largest room I had ever spoken to was 3,000 people. But I had never spoken to one of my, in front of one of my peers before. I had never spoken in front of one of the speakers that I used to manage before. And all of my imposter responses kicked up. You know, all of my stories, all of my reasons I shouldn't be here. All of my, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do this? Who do you think you are, you know, to, to claim to have something to say? Who do you think you are to, to elevate your expertise? Who do you think you are to, to show up, use your voice? I mean, all of it. And I just destroyed myself for, for an evening. I rewrote the presentation. I took out bits that were great, but that I just hadn't, you know, done before that I had written specifically for this audience. Took them out. I wasn't practiced enough at it. I redid the whole thing and the next morning I was a wreck. I was exhausted and I was um, still obsessing. And I had a presentation that quite frankly wasn't as strong as the presentation that I had started out with because, you know, who'd have guessed it? 2 a.m. brainstorming does not produce the best ideas. And I got up on stage and I did it. It was two hours and it was good. It wasn't great, it was good. Um, it was, it was enough to get across what I wanted to get across, but I knew what it could be and it wasn't that. And I got off stage and I just felt defeated, utterly defeated, ironically by my own brain. And I got to my bag, I was going up to my room to pack and I picked up my phone and there was a text message on my phone and it said, Hey, 
really sorry. I decided to take an early, I spoke before you. I decided to take an early flight. I'm not going to be able to see you. Hopefully next time. Oh my gosh. I had just utterly destroyed myself for no reason. No reason at all. And it was in that moment, I'd say, in that moment that things changed for me. I can pretty much pinpoint that was the moment that things changed. Because I suddenly thought, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, if the presence of one human being, if something that is completely outside of my control can send me off a ledge, then something's got to change. Because I am the only person who gets to control how I show up. I am the only person that says whether I have a right to be there. I am the only person that sets my state. I'm the only person who chooses my state. Nobody else. Nothing else. And either that is true or it is not true. And I need to decide. And so I did. And I think that the, you know, without making it sound like this magical button that I pressed, it wasn't a magic button. But the shift was more that I stopped engaging with that voice, that imposter voice. I stopped engaging with it as an ally. I stopped engaging with it as a part of myself that was, you know, that was on my side. A part of myself that was kind of nudging me in the ribs going, hey, you know, I'm just trying to keep you safe here. Hey, you know what? Yeah, this could go horribly wrong. Let's just not. Or, you know, let's just half show up and then, you know, we can say that, you know, we were tired and it could have been better, but, you know, we just didn't get any sleep. You know, let's just, let's play it safe here. Let's just, let's keep everybody safe. Let's just slow it down, wind it back. And it was that realization that that voice is not my ally and to stop treating it as if it were my ally. It was not my ally. It was just really old wiring, really old wiring. It was also not my enemy. It's just really old wiring. It's an alarm that goes off somewhere in my consciousness as a reminder that I have hit the edge of something and nothing more, nothing more. And now when it kicks in, because it still kicks in, don't worry, it doesn't go anywhere. It still kicks in. But now when it kicks in, I I can recognize it for what it is. You know, it's usually 24 hours, 36 hours before something big that I'm about to do, a big pitch, a big presentation, a big podcast interview. And, you know, it'll go off like clockwork and it usually sounds a little bit like, oh my God. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what words are going to come out of my mouth. I can't remember a thing. And even if I could remember, I'm pretty sure all of it is nonsense. And I should probably just pull the pin right now. Let's pull it. And as soon as that narrative, because it is like a broken record, it's the same every time. As soon as that narrative kicks in, then or now I am able to go, oh, there you go. There it is. There's my alarm bell. There's my alarm. And you know what? We never pull out. We never pull out. We never quit. We we always show up every single time and every single time it's just fine. You know, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's just good. Sometimes it's a learning experience. But every single time we show up, it is just fine. We never wished that we had pulled the pin. So, you know, thank you. And let's keep moving. Let's keep going. And so that was the shift for me. And it happened, as I said, in that one day in Bangkok, and I'll never forget the moment where I stopped treating the imposter as an ally. 
and instead started treating it as an alarm, simply an alarm. Well, I think that that is the most amount of talking I have ever done on this podcast. (laughs) The team are going to well and truly regret giving me a microphone without somebody else to distract me. Um, What's on the radar for next year? Well, big things, maybe more of this, maybe more of me talking, I don't know. Um, Let me know if it's something you want me to do more of, if you want, you know, some of your questions answered or whether I'll just show up once a year with a bit of a review and and a little Q&A. Also in breaking news, the program is back on. My program is back on. This has been a labor of love for the past two years. Um, We got it so close to launch. And for all of you who are looking forward to the launch this year and who are watching the emails come through, it broke our heart just as much to pull it. But I promise you the energy that we were able to put into it when I came back and the new ideas and the new stuff that is in there, it is my best work yet. It is 20 years of all of my experience creating thought leaders, creating influencers, building authorities in their space. It is everything I know in one blueprint. So watch out if you're not already on the wait list, jump on, please jump on. We'd love to know that you're there. If you go onto my website, um, I think it's under masterclasses, it's called Rapid Authority at the moment. Um, Jump onto the wait list and that way you'll be the first to know when it launches early next year. So that very much is coming up. Um, Other than that, there'll just be more incredible guests more incredible human beings, more incredible people, trailblazers who are out there um, making a big difference with their ideas. And I'll be bringing you as many of those as humanly possible. It's ultimately one of the, the, my favorite bits of my world, getting to do this podcast. You know, as for the break, I'm going to be mainly eating baked salmon. No turkey this year. None of my family like turkey, as I have discovered, and I'm not that keen on it either. So so this year it will be a baked salmon, either baked well or baked badly, but baked nonetheless. I will also be eating plenty or drinking plenty of rosé and I'll be binge watching The Crown. So if there's any other binge worthy recommendations of shows that you have for me, they are gratefully received. Please send them on in. I will have the time because I will have made the time to reset before kicking off for 2023. On that note... And for another year, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for emailing. Thank you for um, for sending the messages. You know, I read every single one, I promise you. I read every single one. And they always arrive at exactly the right moment for me and for the team. So it is a gift that you give us when you when you get in touch and send us your thoughts and questions and ideas. Or a snapshot just in where you're at in your life right now and where you're at in your own journey of influence. But more than anything else, I think I would just like to thank you for showing up. Thank you for showing up on this journey. It's not an easy journey. It's a journey of courage. It's a journey of consistency. It is a journey of conviction. And it is hopefully a journey of care, of caring for yourself, for everybody around you, and for the journey that you get to take people on and it is a honor to walk this road with you so merry christmas happy 2023 and i will see you on the other side 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.